chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. We are now in verse 1 up to verse 13. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1 to verse 13. The Lord's Supper we just celebrated is a sacred drama. It was instituted by our Lord Jesus Christ to shape our imagination. Our good shepherd has spread a table for us to reassure us in the midst of our fallenness, our failure, that we are bound to him in loving, covenant relationship, and he is not going to give up on us. We are reconciled to him forever. And it's not because of anything we have done. It is because God in his grace has opened our eyes to see the beauty of Christ, to trust in him. And Christ then is reminding us in having us partake of this table that we have been brought into his story. Our story is embedded in God's grand purposes for the world. That's the story that Paul has been telling in Ephesians. In chapter 1, he reminds us that God's plan is to bring all things under the lordship of Jesus. That's in verse 10 of chapter 1. That God is restoring shalom through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And by that same death and resurrection, Jesus has triumphed over sin and death and Satan and his minions. That's why Paul in chapter 1 verse 20 to 22 proclaims the fact that Christ is exalted far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he has put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. And united with Christ, in chapter 2, verse 1 to 10, we are told that we rise with him to the life of the new creation and are, in fact, seated with him in the heavenly places. And so verse 10, chapter 2, verse 11, all the way to verse 22, reminds us that we are the new humanity, God's holy temple. And if you look at it in light of the original creation of Genesis 1 and 2, Jesus then is the last Adam who is fulfilling the mandate that God had given to Adam to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. We often look at that as a command to procreate. And there is truth to that. But there's more to that command than simply procreation. You see, Eden was not just a garden. It was a temple, a sanctuary where God's presence was manifest in the presence of Adam and Eve, who are God's image bearers, but also in the fact that God walked in the garden. But, and so Adam, in being told to multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, was being told that he was God's priest, 
responsible to expand the borders of Eden to fill the whole earth. That was his wonderful privilege. But you know that Adam failed. And so Jesus, the last Adam, in creating a new humanity and building the church as God's holy temple, is fulfilling that mandate as the church expands to fill the whole earth. So realize who we are, brethren. We are God's holy temple, fulfilling God's original purpose. But we are also, in light of the victory that Jesus won in order to make us a new humanity, we are God's monument to his triumph in Christ. In chapter 3, verse 1 to verse 10, Paul, uh, 1 to 13, Paul is bringing to the fore that reality, our identity as a church, our very existence demonstrates to the demonic powers the wisdom of God that has overcome sin, Satan, and death. That's what Paul is pointing out in verse 10. So, chapter 3, verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's the awesome reality taking place right here, right now. Our communal life throughout the week and our gathered worship glorify God by demonstrating the victory of Jesus and the defeat of Satan. Which begs the question, if the church is a monument to the triumph of God in Christ, why is it so unimpressive? Why, is, why does the church look like us? Why is the church marginalized in today's society? I remember early um, in 2020, sometime around April or May, Feb Central organized a meeting, a Zoom meeting with a member of parliament and, um, and some past, and Feb Central pastors. And you could sense this angst on the part of the pastors protesting against the government's um, lack of interest, you might say, in the church. And, you know, that's not a new question. John the Baptist actually asked essentially the same question of Jesus. If you're the Messiah, why am I languishing in jail? What's the deal here? If you're the king who sets the prisoners free, why am I still a prisoner? Well, that's the question that Paul is addressing in this section. It's actually a digression from his whole argument, which, funny enough, fits into the argument. So let's read chapter 3, verse 1 to verse 13. 
For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he breaks off. Verse 2 to verse 13 is the digression. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Now then as now, imprisonment was shameful. And Paul's incarceration raised questions, legitimate questions, about his credibility. So here, Paul is explaining the tension between his critical role as God's apostle to the Gentiles and his shameful condition as a prisoner. But the interesting thing about what Paul writes is that he doesn't explain away his imprisonment. He doesn't relativize it. He doesn't minimize it. He does something even more surprising. He shows that his imprisonment is part of God's paradoxical, subversive strategy for proclaiming the victory of Jesus Christ. He is explaining, as verse 13 says, how his suffering should encourage the Ephesian church because his suffering is for their glory. I like the way Timothy Gombis sums up what Paul is doing here. He says, Paul's strategy is to situate his present circumstances squarely within the biblical tradition of God's power being demonstrated in human weakness. He does this by emphasizing the paradox of his life and ministry. At the same time that he occupies this terribly shameful and utterly weak situation as a prisoner, he fulfills a cosmically crucial commission as the administrator of the grace of God. In so doing, Paul wonderfully performs the same paradox as God's victory in Christ. Jesus Christ conquered the powers and authorities through his shameful and humiliating death on a Roman cross. Because of God's upside-down logic, performances of God's triumph will inevitably invoke displays of God's power 
through human weakness, loss, shame, and humiliation. And so Paul describes himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. He's reinterpreting the situation rightly. He's saying, I may be a prisoner of Rome, but the truth of the matter is, I am right where God intends me to be. I am carrying out, by my imprisonment, the purposes of King Jesus. He is in prison because of the gospel that he proclaimed. He is embodying his message because he was tasked with explaining this mystery. Now, when, when we say mystery, we often think Hardy Boys or Sherlock Holmes, something that needs to be solved. Well, this is not a mystery in that sense. Neither is it a mystery. Um, sometimes pastors like me retreat into saying it's a mystery because we don't have the words to explain something and we're too lazy to find them. Um, this is a different kind of mystery. He gives us the content of that mystery in verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. It is a mystery, the union of Jews and Gentiles through the gospel, not because it's not soluble, not, not because it's something you, that doesn't make sense. It is a mystery because no one could have predicted or anticipated it. That's why it's called a mystery. The only way for Paul and the other apostles and prophets to know it is for the Spirit of God to reveal it to them. And that's why verse 3 to verse 5, he makes the point. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. It's not because I'm special or I'm smarter. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. It's something that needed God to reveal to them. And it's not that the Old Testament did not envision the salvation of Gentiles. After all, God told Abraham in Genesis 12, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there was already that implication that Gentiles would be blessed, would be saved. What had not been revealed was God's strategy to make it happen. In the minds of the Jews, it would be as Gentiles become Jews. God had a different plan different strategy. God's strategy was that God himself, the infinite, eternal, sovereign God, would enter into this broken world in the weakness of a fully human being, absolutely dependent on the Spirit, so that he might endure the shame of dying on a Roman cross as our sacrifice and substitute. So that this infinitely powerful God brought about redemption. 
not by arms stretched out in power as he had when he rescued the Israelites from Egypt, but by arms stretched out and nailed on a Roman cross. It was inconceivable. And as a steward of the gospel, Paul's ministry was shaped by that inconceivable cross of Jesus Christ. His unworthiness of his calling that he highlights in verse 7 and and in verse 8. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. This was a countercultural definition of the grace of God. See, in that culture, a minister or a messenger of such a wonderful message needed to look wonderful. According to Lynn Kohick, um, who wrote the New International Commentary on Ephesians, said this, the recipient in that culture, the recipient of a gift, was expected to be worthy of it. One's worth is determined by one's wealth, social standing, or ethnic background. A suitable recipient would use the gift wisely, thus demonstrating the wisdom and generosity of the gift givers. Paul's readers would expect that God gave this gift to Paul because he was in some way worthy or would become worthy. Paul turns such expectations upside down and out as he highlights his own unworthiness of the gift and emphasizes God's power to make his gift effective in Paul's ministry. So in describing himself as the very least of all the saints, dependent on the power of God to become a faithful messenger, Paul is challenging cultural expectations. His weakness and dishonorable imprisonment look like they disqualify him from being a minister of the gospel. He's saying, no, no. They qualify me to be a minister of the gospel because they serve to point not to me, but to God. As he had told the Corinthian church in our scripture reading, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And by the way, When we say jars of clay, we're not talking about priceless Ming vases, okay? That's not you. (laughs) God values us as if we were Ming vases. The reality is we are jars of clay. If we are to contextualize today, think of those disposable water bottles. That's you and me. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. To put it in Marshall McLuhan's terms, the medium is the message. 
And Paul is reshaping their understanding of his situation so that they may follow his example. In the same way that uh, that Paul proclaimed the victory of Jesus through his suffering, so the church is called to demonstrate the triumph of Christ as a suffering community shaped by the cross. See, the paradox of the cross is central to our faith. And that same paradox defines how we live it out. Recall that paradox. Satan thought he was winning by having Judas betray Jesus so that the Jews, God's own chosen people, could kill Jesus. But in the wisdom of God, the ultimate evil of man rejecting the Son of God was the very means of God rescuing us from Satan's gift, grip, and defeating the devil. That wonderful paradox is what we are here to demonstrate. We are the means by which God makes known his multifaceted, variegated wisdom. Call it a rainbow-colored wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And Paul says this was God's eternal plan. Verse 9, the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Isn't that amazing? That you and I, we, the church, are God's subversive community created to embody God's upside-down wisdom. And you might say, I wish we were better, more popular, more influential, more powerful. That's, That's thinking about it wrong way up. Or wrong way down. (laughs) That's twisted logic. And it points to the fact that we are still in the process of breaking free from our culture's narrative. Again, let me cite Timothy Gombis. Many evangelical Christians see threatening social forces at work to legitimize a range of immoral behaviors and want to do something about it. And that's a good thing. However, grabbing hold of power and control in culture, however, is a strategy that Christians must resist. It is a strategy that makes perfect sense in a world perverted by the powers. But it is a role that Christian actors must refuse. Just as Paul bore the injustice of imprisonment and continued in faithfulness to his gospel role, Churches ought to do the same. This involves giving up the pursuit of control in the political sphere and resisting the opportunity to exercise power in culture. Such pursuits over the last half century on the part of evangelicals have led only to a triumphalist spirit, demonization of outsiders, and the creation of a public reputation for angry denunciation and anti-intellectualism. 
This is not to say that Christian churches ought to resist participating in the wider culture or that churches ought to remove themselves from politics rather than grabbing for power. We ought to consider how we can embody weakness and humility, releasing God's resurrection power and allowing God's triumph to be displayed. In fact, as you read through Ephesians 4 onwards, Paul describes how we embody that weakness and humility as a congregation But for now, let's acknowledge that embodying weakness and humility just runs contrary to our natural instincts, doesn't it? As a pastor, I would rather respond to Bill C4 by preaching a confrontational sermon that basically dares the government, put me in jail if you dare. Or if I were a blogger, to put an angry blog post. Logical, well-reasoned, biblical, but confrontational. Those are easier responses than showing the love of Christ to a friend struggling with her sexuality. That step looks weak, is not visible, but I suggest that that is the way of Jesus. Who commands us to turn the other cheek? To surrender not just your tunic, but also your cloak. And to go the extra mile. That is the meekness that demonstrates the life-transforming power of the gospel. It is that determination to overcome evil with good. If our enemy hungers, we feed him. If he thirsts, we give him drink. And we don't poison it. Jesus calls us to triumph by giving up our rights and privileges so that his power might be on display. It is ultimately an act of faith in our sovereign God who is righteous. God is pleased to display his multicolored wisdom through us through the weakness and frailty of a congregation of forgiven sinners struggling through the process of being made new. And our sovereign God is pleased to display the triumph of Jesus over the powers in the life of a community of faith, like you and me, seeking to stay faithful as we navigate the realities of life under onerous COVID restrictions. And yet longing to reach out to the community around us while being painfully aware of our limitations. Yes, we may wish we were stronger. 
But let's also acknowledge that our weakness and imperfection in the present are the canvas on which God portrays the glory of Christ's redemptive work. And in the here and now, with all our flaws and failures, the amazing reality we often overlook is that God is glorifying himself through us. People don't notice, and we often don't see it. But guess what? The demonic powers around us see it. That's the reality that Paul is trying to open our eyes to. Because we're often blind to what God is doing. It's not about success or effectivity, however we define these things. It is about faithfulness to model the character of Jesus. So what does that look like moving forward? Well, if you look at it in light of the whole of Ephesians, it's about being what we are in Christ. Or perhaps more precisely, because we live in the already, not yet, we need to be what we are becoming. So if Ephesians 2 describes the church as God's new humanity, a countercultural community reconciled to God, embodying reconciliation with one another as God's forever family, imagine then a church characterized by racial, socioeconomic, and generational diversity where we overlook the strangeness and the smells to appreciate the uniqueness of every person, recognizing that if this person has put his or her faith in Jesus Christ, then he or she is my sibling in Jesus, my forever family. And we value the way their otherness enriches our experience of the kingdom of God. Imagine if we sacrificed personal comfort and our personal resources to meet our brother's needs the way the early church did. Imagine seniors serving as mentors to young adults, helping them flourish by encouraging, advising, and supporting them, and young adults actually listening. (laughs) I've been one of those. Imagine young people delivering groceries and meals to shut-ins and not just stopping at the door, but entering the door and taking the time to listen and learn from their stories. Imagine a church where there are no lonely people because everyone is pursued by community. Where those who have lost loved ones find people who grieve with them over the long haul. Not because they want them to get over it, but because we understand the pain. And we are willing to share that same pain for as long as they are enduring that pain. Imagine a church where we refuse to give up on those who are struggling with addiction or those struggling with mental health. Imagine our church 
where our awe at the grandeur of God leads us to delight in our brethren because we recognize that they are image bearers of this great and glorious God. And our mutual delight in one another doesn't become a closed loop, but rather overflows in loving service and hospitality to our neighbors where we sacrifice time, money, and energy as a united community to seek the welfare of the city. Imagine a church where we lovingly confront sin with a commitment to repentance and restoration, where we embrace the pain of forgiving, where we are humble enough to accept forgiveness where we are so serious about theological accuracy that we humble ourselves to listen to people who disagree with us because they just might be right so that we might resolve our differences of opinion by submitting to Scripture. Wouldn't you want to be part of that church? Well, guess what? That is the kind of church that God has been forming right here at Crestwick. I can see glimmers and indications that that's what's going on. That God is at work in us by his spirit to grow us into a temple that reflects the holy character of Jesus. And I can talk about that not just because I see it happening but because God promises that he will make it happen. And I have to warn you, it will be painful. I think you've felt some of that pain already. It's going to get worse. (laughs) But it will be worthwhile. You see, God is making himself at home in our lives and in our church so that we would manifest his glorious presence. And so Paul closes off this section by reminding us that in Christ Jesus our Lord, verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. See, our transformation flows out of our union and communion with him. That's why I can be confident that it will happen. It's not about my strategies or your godliness. It's about God's determination to shape us into that kind of people. And I know it will happen because we are united with Christ through faith. And God condescends to dwell in us, with us. Let me just stop here and say that if you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, you might be here. But unless you're in Christ, unless you have put your faith in Christ, you're watching the process go on, but you're unable to share in the beauty of that process. And our prayer for you is that you would put your faith in Christ, that God would open your eyes to see the glory and beauty of Jesus so that you would trust in him. So that together with us,
we would be God's showcase of God's infinite wisdom, God's growing monument, being beautified to display the triumph of Jesus. That even now, as we are in process, God is showing off to the demonic hosts arrayed against us. Now, that sounds like trouble, doesn't it? (laughs) We need not be afraid. Because the same Jesus who triumphed dwells in us, with us. We are God's temple, God's dwelling place. He is with us. And our privilege is to manifest by our life together his presence. So with our brethren in Ephesus who first read this text, let us take heart. Let us be encouraged. Let us prayerfully cooperate with God's work in our lives. Let us pray. Oh, the depth of the riches, the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways are past finding out. For who has ever given to God that it should be repaid to him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen.